This podcast is sponsored by the EV Clinic. Preparation for life. Welcome to the Baby Tribe podcast, where we will explore the beautiful chaos of parenthood and discover the joys and challenges of nurturing our little ones. We are your hosts, Katie Mugan and Afif El-Kafash. Each week, we'll bring you the latest information on all things to do with parenting and delve into insightful conversations with experienced parents to bring you practical tips, heartwarming stories, and a dose of laughter that every parent can relate to. So grab your coffee, find a cozy spot, and join us as we embark on this unforgettable journey of parenthood together. Welcome to the Baby Tribe. What cozy spot is a parent going to find? on your ear pods and out you go for that walk and you'll get to tune in and listen to myself and Afif talking everything small babies related. Let's get to it. Hello everyone. Welcome to the Baby Tribe podcast, the podcast where you get evidence-based, unbiased information on all things to do with baby and now child health. We've yes. kind of... We're branching out. We're branching out into older children, which I think is great. Um, we, we hope that you're enjoying our episodes so far and we are closely approaching can we say the c word yet oh my god we're talking about it at home all the time really yeah we've got a smith's catalog that is opened every day and picked randomly from so my daughter who is 15 has a wish list on her iphone that she has compiled she shares that she has compiled over the last few months that she whips out every now and again when there's a big occasion coming and my kids get the benefit of two different religious backgrounds. So they get all the Eid presents and they also get all the Christmas presents. So they're spoilt, rotten. And she has this list of things that are, you know, she's ready with them to come out straight When's away. Eid? Eid varies based, you know, there's Eid after Ramadan and there's okay. Eid after Hajj, which is the pilgrimage to Mecca. And so there's two. So do they get presents twice, both of those events? They do. And then they also wow. do Christmas. Yeah. And but they don't fall near Christmas. Uh, well, you see, because Islam is a lunar calendar, the the timing of these things change every year. So she tells me that dad in 30 years time, you know, you can save money because Christmas and Eid will fall on the same day. So you can oh, only wow. get us, you can only get us one present. It's okay. We'll, I was like, I'm not getting you presents when you're like, what, 45 in 30 years time. She still expects, she you still will, expects. Though. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, she still expects Christmas presents. But so uh, trigger warning, if you have little ears, um, maybe turn off. Um, until the little ears are no longer there. Um, you see, I grew up in Kuwait, so we didn't really have Christmas. And um, and me and Anne used to always, you know, have have uh, kind of fights about this and that I used to resent not getting credit for all the presents that my kids used to get. And like, oh, look how amazing Santa is. Oh my God, Santa got me exactly what I wanted. And I'm sitting in the back seething and Anna's like, shut up, shut up, <laughs> shut up. Do not ruin Christmas for them. And I'm kind of going, but we got all of this shit for them. And It's um, my favorite time of the year. I love to see them all get so excited. Yeah, I know. And was, I love it, this magical yeah. person yeah. Yeah. that and is Santa. Yeah, and I know when my kids... Um, uh, kind of grew up and discovered the arrangements surrounding Christmas. They were like, so it was you guys that did all of this. Yes, it was me and your mother. <laughs> now, now you know how much we love you. So, yeah. Oh, we have Santa still, still firmly in our house for another good few years. Like we only, like Luke's turned 13 and we only, we only spoke about it after Christmas last year, even though we knew, he yeah. knew, but we just didn't speak about it. Yeah. So now he's in on the, he's in on it. What are we talking about today? 
we are going to talk all about food allergies. Yes, we have a fantastic guest for you. We have um, Professor Jonathan Horahan, who I'll speak about at the end of our little chat, who is a world-renowned allergy specialist in pediatrics. And I think really this is going to be a really big one. I think there's go- every parent's going to want to hear this. Yes. And there has been some, let's be, I suppose, um, honest about it, some sort of controversial statements coming out recently about when should you introduce foods. And I know when we did our episodes in season one about, you know, recommendations on food introduction, we sort of gave a window from four to six months and we said be as close to six months as possible. However, there's new data coming out suggesting that introducing food slightly earlier than the six-month window may be associated with a lower risk of allergy down the line. And there are now allergy expert committees, both in America and Europe, um, recommending that solid foods should be introduced. What they say now is between four to six months of age in all infants. And some other organizations have also come on board with that. However, they still all firmly recommend that that should happen in tandem with breastfeeding. So it's not a way of weaning babies off breast milk, that you should introduce solids and continue breastfeeding at the same time. And we speak about that actually in our thing, that realistically, once your baby starts solids, for the majority of infants, they don't reduce down their milk, their breast milk intake. Yeah. Um, So it won't impact even when you do start, it generally doesn't have an impact on um, starting, uh, on your breastfeeding journey. And that's a good point to make. So if you want to breastfeed, unless you want to wean them off breast milk, obviously that's your own choice to make and uh, would be fully supportive of that. The recommendation now is to not wait until six months, but to start slightly before that. So there are sort of common allergy causing foods that we usually talk about. And these foods usually are, you know, cow's milk, eggs, soy, wheat, peanuts, sesame, and seafood. So these are the sort of classic, yeah, classic group of foods that may induce an allergy. And then we have what is called, well, who are the high risk groups? Who are the babies that are at a higher risk of developing an an allergy? And I've been kind of looking into this, you know, in preparation for the um, interview with Professor Horahan. And the interesting thing is that there is sort of an ascending gradient of risk assessment for the possible development of food allergy in children. And they are sort of categorized into five groups. There's the general population that most babies fall into. They always have a certain risk of developing allergy without additional risk factors. So that would be your baseline tier of risk, if you like. Then one step over that would be infants with a parental history of allergic disease. So infants with parents, because that's why we sometimes ask, you know, is there a history of eczema? Is there a history of asthma? Is there a history of food intolerance in the family. So infants with a parental history of allergic disease would be the first risk tier. Then after that would be babies or infants that develop mild to moderate eczema. So if they develop eczema early in life, that might be a sign indicating that they are at a higher risk of developing allergy. Following that is actually babies that we know have reacted to a certain food. And then after that, interestingly, is the highest risk are infants with severe eczema. So this is the sort of four tiers. So babies with severe eczema early on in their life are at highest risk of developing allergies to certain foods. You know, in the past, the recommendation was to actually avoid these allergic foods that we listed as as much as possible and as late as possible. And I think that recommendation used to 
be given up until the early 2000s, certainly in the first decades of um, the 2000s, up to 2008, 2009, 2010. But there's recent research actually that suggests that avoiding those foods actually may increase your risk of allergies down the line. I remember actually years and years ago where we'd always say avoid. And then suddenly we started hearing uh, more studies, more research showing that the the sooner that they're um, exposed, those those high risk, the less likelihood of allergies arising. Yeah. So contrary to the traditional advice, Mm -hmm. there's recent studies showing that delayed introduction of solid foods may actually increase the risk of allergy and early introduction of certain foods, especially foods that are traditionally been associated with allergy between four to six months may actually decrease the risk of allergy to that specific food down the line. And you know, when we often hear that a sibling has had an allergy to, let's say, peanuts, and then a lot of the studies used to show that the siblings then are at an increased risk. We now think that part of what modulates that increased risk is the fact that we then automatically avoid peanuts in the sibling, therefore increases their chances of developing the allergy. So although there's a genetic component to that increased risk, we could be actually down to them not being exposed. I'd say that's quite common because yes. even when you point out the first tier being the parent having allergies, you'll often find obviously within a household, if it's an extreme allergy, that they're not, they won't have that allergen in the house. However, we kind of always say that they should be exposed, but you'll often find that the parents are worried that the child may have this allergy and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to risk it. So I'd say a lot of them will delay yeah. And being exposed. That's quite, that's really interesting. Yeah. So the, now the general consensus is regardless of your risk tier, the general con- recommendation is to not avoid any allergenic foods and to start the allergenic foods. And we'll talk about how and when to start them in a minute. But the reason this recommendation is now coming to fruition a little bit more is the fact that there's a lot of studies now demonstrating that early exposure to foods such as peanuts, eggs, can actually reduce your chances of developing allergies to them um, by up to 80%. So it can have a significant impact. And Professor Horan is going to discuss this a lot more eloquently, but there appears to be a tolerance window in the newborn's early life, whereby if you expose them to potential allergens, their immune system can modify itself and cope better. Whereas if you miss that tolerance window and introduce foods that you didn't introduce early on, later on, then they have already had this kind of preset allergy a lot more set in. Does that make sense or am I not making sense? No, no, that is, yeah. Yeah. So the approach now with, with starting is that the child should be at least four months. You don't start solids before four months. And I think, as always, a nice middle of the road approach is to maybe consider starting when they are 20 weeks yeah, old. 20 weeks is quite common. Yeah, 20 I weeks think you old. just have to look at when the baby's, and I know you're going to talk about it, when the baby's act ready yes. to be able to do it. So like, that's why I always say it's a real open window and people, you know, when we say, oh, must be six months, it's actually the reason we give four to six months is because babies uh, reach Diff, you know, d- developmental stages at different rates. Yeah. So you will have some that will hit kind of the 20 week mark and they will be ready. They are, you know, they're able to sit on support, like sit with support that they have, uh, they don't have the tongue thrust that's really significant. And um, they're able to, um, you know, um, even hope bring something to the mouth. Like you're, you'd be amazed at how kids will differ. And there's other kids that they will only hit that stage at six months. So it's very variable. Yeah. And can you remind us what are the signs of 
food readiness. So a baby being able to sit with minimal support in their high chair, feet supported, that they have, we call it minimal tongue trust. That just basically means when we put something in the mouth, they don't keep pushing it back out with their tongue. And that third time, third thing is that they can actually pick it up, uh, pick a piece of food or that up with their hand and bring it to their mouth. So it's that coordination. Yes. And if the baby is showing those signs of readiness, then you could try introducing complementary foods. So the recommendation now is that the child should be able to tolerate a few of the more typical initial complementary foods that we've spoken about in our previous episode. And please go back and listen to that yeah. uh, before you actually start them with any of the more allergenic or allergy inducing foods. So we're saying don't just jump in and start with the allergens. Yeah, don't start give them with peanuts your as their first taste. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> start with your basics, um, like we speak about on our solids. Yeah. Um, and it really does depend. And I say this all the time that even if you start at any stage, your breast, if we are talking about the breastfed infant, we generally never see those breastfeeds uh, drop down. That's up to the baby to indicate to us. So they may feed the same amount of times. They may space out their feeds or they may drop a feed, but that is all baby led. For the majority, they're taking such small quantities of the solid food that that's why we call it complementary. That it's with time, we'll see the complementary foods, the solids increase. And then you may see after one, uh, the milk will reduce in volume. Yes. And the thing to remember is in terms of dairy, don't give your baby cow milk before a year of age, but other dairy products such as yogurts and whatnot can yeah. be introduced as part of the baby's complementary so solids. Just that people are aware because they probably don't pick up the milk, cow's milk, full fat cow's milk can be used in the diet, but just it's not your main source of drink. Yes. And um, yeah, just to avoid it as a drink until about a year of age. So we are now going to move up to our guest. Because it's such a huge area now, Fief. Yes, I think so. We have Professor Jonathan Horahan, who is a professor of paediatrics and child health in the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. So he's actually my boss. Ooh. So yeah, I had to be, I had to be nice to him. So he also works in Temple Street and has moved to Temple Street since 2019, having been the chair and head of paediatrics in UCC Cork between 2005 and 2019. His primary area of clinical and research interest is paediatric food allergy and anaphylaxis. He is a global opinion leader in paediatric food allergy and is Ireland's most cited paediatrician with over 250 peer-reviewed publications. He was a Fulbright HRB Health Impact Scholar to Children's Hospital Colorado in USA in 2020. He is also a founding board member and is the current president of the Clemens von Perquet, I hope I'm not mangling that foundation, and the Irish Food and Allergy Network. He was president of the Irish Association of Allergy and Immunology between 2017 and 2022. He is a principal investigator of the Infant Centre in UCC and sits on the Scientific Advisory Board of the IMU and Therapeutics. He's also been involved in longitudinal, observational and interventional studies for more than 20 years, relating to both investigator-led and industry-sponsored allergy prevention trials in infants, and more recently in the emerging fields of immunotherapy for food and allergy. So really interested in listening to what he has to say. Wow, I cannot wait for this one. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on the Baby Tribe podcast. We are delighted to have you on. We have a lot to discuss, including allergies, all things to do with allergies in young childhood. But first of all, I wanted to, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and your early experience with training and how you kind of became an allergy specialist. Yeah, uh, 
uh, it's great to be here and I've, I've enjoyed previous episodes. So hopefully you get something out of my or the episode I'm in. I always wanted to be a pediatrician, even when I was in, um, uh, before I went to medical school, even during medical school, I thought it was all a, all a little bit interesting. But when I got to pediatrics, I thought, whoa, I found my niche. Uh, I did adult uh, residencies just so I didn't overcommit too early. I think that stood me in good stead over a longer period of time. And then I entered pediatrics uh, after two years of adult residency. I was in the UK and I did UK uh, basic, what, what's now called basic specialist training and higher specialist training in London and Southampton. Then I entered a research program literally by chance. Okay, I wanted to do research. I knew I wanted to, I guess, generate new information rather than just follow somebody else's. I thought I was going to do asthma research. And my the, my mentor, my supervisor said, I want to talk to you before we start. So he says, I want you to study peanut allergy. And I truly had literally never heard of that topic. And he said, I said, what, well, what is it? I, I don't know. I had, I'd had no exposure to allergy as a phenomenon or, or a specialty or an interest or an academic area through my undergraduate time, my adult time or my basic pediatric training. And he said, just go away and read about peanut allergy. And after a week, I came back and I said I could only find four papers. And he went, exactly. Do you mind me asking, when was that? That was in 1993. Oh, wow. Okay. It's recent enough. Oh, it's yeah. Yeah. It's within my career. And so we just said, he just said, do you not think there's an opportunity there? And we, we went, let's go. So uh, my, my wife's a doctor. She was thought, you know, there's an opportunity. My father's a doctor. My mother's a, a neonatal radiographer from the Coombe. And they thought I was committing professional suicide uh, because it was allergy. And um, I've been very happy to prove them wrong. So I want to bring you yeah. back to your early years when you first became a parent. Um, you yeah. obviously had some pediatric knowledge in the background. Mm. Did you feel that that helped you in navigating the early childhood years? With my own children? Yes. Yes, I think there's a, there's a confidence that you can deal with illness in your own children, which makes you maybe a little bit more relaxed. But everyone knows that doctors' children get more advanced disease before they present. So there's a little bit of that too. Um, my daughter had a broken clavicle for 24 hours before we noticed wow. things like that, you know. Uh, so we had a delayed presentation with an injury. I was terrified going into the hospital that we were going to be detained by social work, but that we managed not. We managed to come up with a valid reason. Our children have been well looked after. I don't think we've over-medicalized them. None of them have become doctors, so I think we've done a good job. Uh, they've seen how hard it is to be a doctor, uh, but also how rewarding it is. We both love our jobs. So I think it's been, to me, has it, what, what did it contribute to me being a parent? That things will, the small things don't matter and the big things need all your attention. Okay. I think that's what it taught me. Did you have children while you were traveling? To our first order was, mar was born, our first order was born during my fellowship. So I was on reduced salary, but, uh, so that was tough with all the stuff you have to buy. But I, I, I wasn't doing the horrendous on-call at the time. Uh, you'll remember back in the 90s, on-call was one in three with no relief. So you worked every third night straight and you were working during the day as well. So it was good to not be doing that while we learned how to be parents. And then when I went back onto rotas with, we've got four children, the other children, I was on less onerous rotas and then as a consultant for the last two. So. And was your wife training at the same time? She's a GP, family doctor, so she was going through training and took time out for each of the babies. Um, so that's how you ended up managing it? Yeah. Okay, and was there any feelings of guilt when you were on a one in three rota and not being around the kids as often as you would have liked? 
I think my wife took the burden and I was doing the training. Um, my job took us to two or three different cities. We were very committed to having the maximum professional experiences that we could get. And the children children grew up where we wanted to be. Yeah. Uh, uh, our, we moved back to Ireland when our oldest was 10. So the younger children have had their full childhood in Ireland, basically. So we're very happy that we were able to move around to make my career as productive as it could be. Did you feel that becoming a parent changed how you manage things in your career, in your professional career? It certainly brings you empathy and experience that you can bring it to the bedside that I know how I know what you're going through. Uh, this must be a very tough time for you. The, the stuff that you hear as um, kind of routine discussion or topics that you need to tell parents, but if you mean them, they mean more. And if you have if you have experience, you 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 have more than understanding. You have empathy. Yeah, I, I certainly found that myself after I became a parent. I think the empathy piece um, became a lot more mature. And it's interesting what you say about putting your kids off medicine. Both myself and my wife are physicians as well, and neither of them want to go anywhere near it. They see how rewarding the job is, but they see the long hours, especially that my wife works and they're not really interested in that. Well, I say to the kids, you know, what is it about your own fabulous lifestyle that you don't want your own children to have? <laughs> yeah. And, and sometimes I actually throw that at their faces as well. You know, um, sometimes my daughter used to guilt my my wife into saying, you're never around. And I said, Maggie, do you like, do you enjoy your horse riding lessons? You know, uh -huh. that's why, that's why, uh -huh. you're, that's why you're able to get them. I was able to bring, I did a lot of that uh, sports coaching and driving around and, you know, we'd be cars that literally, literally passed in the road. Uh, for that, for the children, the daughters dance and music and v art and the boys rugby and soccer and any sport that you can name to mention. But I think being a, being a doctor has massive advantages for children uh, to be brought up in that. And I think they've got a positive outlook on, on health as a condition that they need to look after. Yeah. Uh, my daughter works as a, as a solicitor now in medical negligence. So I hope I hope your name doesn't ever come across her desk. Oh, like wow. I hope mine she's, doesn't she's, either. She's a good person to know. Yeah, that's, so that's be, good nice to know. To, be nice to me and it'll all be okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've had such an illustrious career to date. Um, who were your mentors along your way? When I first started paediatrics, my very first consultant was a man called Neil Martin, who's a general paediatrician with a neonatal interest in Canterbury in Kent. And... Uh, his his capacity to work hard was extraordinary. He was doing a one in three as a consultant with juniors who had no paediatric experience running a neonatal unit, a level three neonatal unit. And I, I thought, wow, if he can do it, I can do it. So Neil, Neil was a, a positive guy and he encouraged me to write up a case series of children with some listen carefully, which has ended up with my name years later on a paper in Nature Genetics. So I, I was always grateful to him for that. And then the next mentor who made a huge difference to me was John Warner, my uh, uh, MD supervisor in Southampton, who put me onto peanut allergy. He was a facilitative mentor. He allowed me work away. He wanted to see the papers. We didn't have a lot of meetings. And so, all the, as he told me, that meant that all the mistakes were mine, not his. Yeah. So that's a lesson I've learned. Uh, and then Stefan Strobel was a, an immunologist in Great Ormond Street. Uh, who met, who recruited me to do work on mouse studies. So I learned a little bit about murine models of disease and about oral tolerance, because allergy is considered, I guess, to be the flip of tolerance. So I knew a lot about allergy at the time, and I knew nothing about tolerance. And it turns out that the the way out of allergy is to promote tolerance, not to just manage allergy by staying away from the foods, is you have to promote tolerance. So we've gone from passive, terrible restrictions and stress about avoiding foods to 
I think it is a little bit stressful for families to give the foods, but it's it's the way out of the jungle. And I think from other groups in London and around the world and our work in Dublin now and in Cork, making people just, we say, just eat the food as opposed to, God, avoid it. Don't go near that food. I think we're starting to crack it that the risk of an individual baby having a reaction is only one or two percent. So 98 out of 100 children will be okay with the food. So we have to push that that's the right way to do it rather than making 100% of children avoid a food because only one or two of them react. It's it's about what is your community's tolerance of risk. In a community, the tolerance of risk might be very high, but in a family where there's only one baby, the tolerance of risk is zero. Yeah, that, it's very interesting. And it's an amazing segue into what I want to discuss in terms of your bread and butter allergies. I suppose the main three topics that I'd like to touch on, if, if time allows us, mm. is chasmal protein allergy, because that is quite relevant to babies over the first couple of years of life, the tolerance theory that you spoke about, and the recommendation and the ongoing debate as to when to introduce solids to babies over the first year of age. And then, if that's okay, I want to touch on the various tests that parents often ask for in terms of testing for allergies and the value of those and how early can they be done and whether you can glean anything from them. So maybe let's start with the and we only have half an hour, right? You know, I'm actually interested to learn as well, because these are a lot of questions that I get asked when I see when I see babies over the first year of age. Let's maybe explore a bit more the kind of theory of tolerance. There are some calls, recent calls to maybe that waiting until six months to introduce solids may not be the correct thing to do, that it is probably a good idea to start a bit earlier. So what are your what are your views on that? I'm conscious of the the WHO guidelines about uh, exclusive breastfeeding for as near to or past six months, if possible. Uh, and I think that's that's a, a valid and reasonable and proportionate strategy for where food security is not high. So if there are other sources of safe water and uh, clean food not available to you, I think that's reasonable. I think in other developed and developing parts of the world with food sec- secure food, uh, there is an advantage to introducing foods between sort of 18 and 25 weeks because there's a window of tolerance in young life that isn't present later in life. The, the human baby and all babies are not immunologically ex- externally naive when they're born and they spend the first year or years of their life being exposed to viruses, fungi, helminths, foods, so everybody has always survived as a population, not individuals, but as a population, we've always got through that. It makes sense that food is part of the environment that you need to experience in as diverse a fashion as possible. Mono, mono diets are not good for anybody. And children need to develop their taste and dietary preferences. And um, if, our, if our civilization is based on wheat dairy and eggs, which it is from uh, farming over the last 20,000 years, it must be that we have survived to this level of civilization by tolerizing tolerizing ourselves to those foods by eating them. Because if we'd avoided those foods when we were hunting and gathering, we there wouldn't be anybody here now. Yeah. To, can I make it as simple as that? You know, what's interesting is in my field, in preterm babies, um, we generally introduce solids to them when they are six months of chronological age mm-hmm. rather than corrected age. So, for example, you could very conceivably have a baby that's born at 24, 25, 26 weeks gestation 
that then start solids at around four months of their corrected age, four months from their due date. So, and they, they do fine. And in fact, that's encouraged to try and, um, you know, promote their growth and things like that. So if preterm babies can tolerate food at that developmental stage, why can't term babies? So that, that makes sense. Is there data to back that up? Well, I think you probably do know that uh, preterm babies have lower rates of food allergy and asthma and eczema than babies born at term. And it might be that it's due to the earlier weaning. Uh, so uh, studies, uh, I was looking at it yesterday, studies from Sweden called the BAMSA cohort from 1994 had a rate of X for um, food allergy in term infants. And then a, a, a study that's finished called the STOPA study uh, reported in 2017 that the preterm infants had much lower rates than the BAMSA babies. And it might be that that tolerance window is lower in the first year than we have it at the moment, because I think that WHO six-month cutoff is kind of a, a line in the sand that people are scared to cross. But I think the data from very famous and high-quality level one, grade one study, Cochrane study, Cochrane evaluated studies out of the UK have conclusively shown uh, introduction of peanut and other foods between four and six months reduces the rates of allergies. One of the studies is called the EAT study. And it was a very complicated study because they wanted to introduce six foods. And it came out their primary endpoint wasn't reached because the study was too complicated. But for the big three foods, milk, egg and peanut, if they if you got those foods in after four months, before six months, the the allergy rate was tiny compared to the group who were, who were in the control group. So there's compelling level one, grade one evidence that early weaning prevents allergies in uh, young infants who are in high risk groups. So if it prevents it in high-risk groups, it's reasonable that people in low-risk groups do it too so that you're not kind of selecting people out. Yeah, and by no means are we um, disenfranchising breastfeeding or promoting breastfeeding. Not at all. Yeah, no. so I think that's important to say. I, let me let me just answer that directly. It may be that the opportunity to introduce the foods while breastfeeding is continuing might be one of the advantages of that early thing. Because I think in Ireland what we have is we have families going oh, I'm feeding, I'm feeding, I'm feeding, I'm going back to work. I better stop feeding and then get milk in. And it might be it's the stopping the, the breast milk while introducing the foods is the problem. And if we could get them to sort of continue continue breastfeeding, yes. that's called the umbrella effect of breastfeeding for allergy prevention. It's very hard to study that uh, because once you start mentioning it, you, there's pressure on the woman to either continue breastfeeding or stop breastfeeding. But the immunological benefits of all kinds relating to breastfeeding overwhelm all other considerations, yeah. for sure. Interesting. And we've spoken just before we started the interview about the microbiome probably modulating a lot of what you're talking about. I think, I think the phrase at the moment is the microbiome is the crucible of all illness and health, is that if you can get a healthy microbiome, you're going to have better gut health, you're going to have better uh, uh, allergy-related health, better immunological. For older people, dementia, infection, for diabetes, I, I'm really convinced. I think the data are really compelling that uh, optimizing your microbiome. Now, I don't know what an optimum microbiome is, but uh, having a microbiome that reflects diversity in your diet and you have a diverse microbiome appears to be very good for anybody who has it. And in children who have lower microbiome diversity, they have higher rates of food allergies, diabetes, and uh, inflammatory bowel diseases. So um, there's more gut, there's more microbiome in our gut than there is us in our gut. 
So uh, it must be there for a good reason. Yeah, and we discussed uh, a study recently on a previous episode on the podcast saying that, you know, if a baby grows with pets in-house, they actually have less allergies down the line. And that probably is also modulated by having a more diverse microbiome as a result of pets being around the house, maybe adding the diversity. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the microbiome effect is with the pets. The pets, it's maybe endotoxin, which may be modulating their immune system rather than the microbiome. Because I don't know that there's a major crossover from canine or feline microbiome to humans. So endotoxin is an immunomodulatory exposure. And we know the endotoxin from animals is in their feces and then they lick and share their charm their charming uh, licking habits with humans yeah. i have a complete thing about cats and dogs licking children I, I, yeah we actually i don't trained, think it's a good idea at all we trained our dog not to lick yeah not well to, done you know and um it works i think you can train them yeah. to do that and then they know but having them in the house I, I guess and i, I yeah. don't know this uh having a dog makes you get out and get more exercise yeah there's lots of different reasons yeah. why pets are good for families perfect i want to sort of pivot a little bit and talk about camel protein allergy because mm. it's Seems to me that the apparent incidence of it is increasing or we're probably overdiagnosing. Mm. And it sometimes can be linked to a fussy baby, a colicky baby, a baby that is just does not settle. Sometimes, you know, they are labeled with having a caramel protein allergy. And the question I want to ask first is the terms. Sometimes you hear caramel protein intolerance. Sometimes you hear caramel protein allergy. The way I understand it, may be different to how you're going to mm-hmm. answer the question, but I understand intolerance as a lower level than allergy. You're not actually, you don't mount an allergic reaction, but for some reason it doesn't agree with you as much. Is that a fair assessment of it? I, can, I haven't got a better explanation for intolerance. We don't, we don't know, but it's certainly not diagnosable with any test. Yeah. Okay, that, I think I, I want to put out that intolerances can only be proven or demonstrated or disproved by an elimination diet and a reintroduction. So don't let anybody waste their money on tests. Uh, Cow's milk allergy comes in two forms. One is the IgE-mediated form related to antibodies, and that's um, the one where you get anaphylaxis, hives, wheezing, major GI upsets. Uh, And the non-IgE-mediated one is the one where you get lower-grade GI upsets and cramp and loose stools maybe, but you can also get atopic dermatitis or eczema. The Irish data from our baseline study in Cork is about 2% of babies in Ireland have cow's milk allergy, about 2% of of peanut allergy and about 3% of egg allergy. And they all overlap because once you have one food allergy, you're more likely to have another. However, the rate of use of special milks for cow's milk allergy is at like 15 or 20% of babies. So when we make the diagnosis properly, we have 2%, but 20% of babies are on special milks or have tried exclusion diets. There's a gap of credibility between what we can prove and what is being treated. And allergists have got a bad rep recently for the overdiagnosis of milks. But in fact, I, I just put on the record, I've only prescribed Neocate to one baby in the last two years because the story of how the baby reacts tells us whether they need to do anything special or not. And if you're going to try a baby on a new milk to see if they're allergic to cow's milk it has to not just be one that's comfort or lactose free because that's nothing to do with food allergy it has to have hydrolysis of the proteins to make them digestible and on that point sorry to cut you off Hmm. what about the partially hydrolyzed ones that you see um on the market 
I, I, I struggle with finding a role for them. There's no preventive role for partial hydrolysis formulas. And some babies who are maybe already in the transition from actually being allergic to become tolerant will manage on a partially hydrolyzed formula. But we would advise that you use an extensively hydrolyzed formula. From the outset. From the outset. There's no role for somebody going into a, chem- a pharmacy and saying they want partially hydrolyzed formula. And, and we want to get that over, over prescription down because it's damaging the credibility that families feel about their own allergies when there's 10 other babies who are having special feeds who don't have the problem. Now, a child can cry for must be a million reasons. Um, colic, as you've discussed, or, or I, I presume you've discussed colic here. We have several times. Yeah. Yes. So colic isn't an allergic condition. So why would you give it a special milk? Okay. Now, some ba- I, I'm, I'm on a paper where there has been a soft signal where colic was slightly reduced in children who are on um, special formula. But I don't think there's any rock hard evidence that anything makes any difference to colic. And we have to try and get families through that dreadful six to 10 week period. Cow's milk allergy, really, we don't see it so much in breastfed infants. We don't want mothers who are breastfeeding changing their own diet to see if they can improve their children's colic or sleeping. That seems to be falling away rapidly at the moment. That's an important message for your listeners. Yeah, because I still hear that message in the community. Mothers Mm. come to me with colic and they've already been asked to come off dairy to see if the colic would improve. The... The number of children who, who are breastfed who are proven to be cow's milk allergy has always been thought to be about a half a percent, but I think that's a 10 or 20 fold overestimate. And I, I, I think it's not worth doing. If people, it, the only situation where we would advise it is if you see symptoms when you have, there's not much human, there's not much cow's milk in human breast milk, and it might be tolerizing because it's coming with breast milk. So we wouldn't want to stop it unless there was a good reason for it, that the child was incredibly sick and the mother came off milk for a week maybe and saw that there was a difference. So there's an awful lot of changing where you go from breastfeeding to exclusive to exclusion diet, but no going back. And then you're off that food, then you're off this food, then you're off four foods, then you're off six foods and the mother's really wasting away. And the same goes with the sort of milk lottery Instead of saying, well, that milk didn't work, let's go back to the first one. Let's go to, so they end up on, I make the joke that they end up on yak milk and um, Himalayan, melted Himalayan snow. You know, that's, I'm trivializing it, but you've got to say that change didn't work. So instead of making another mistake or, or error of movement, go back to where you started. Because as time passes, the, those non-allergic symptoms are largely settling down. And we want people on milk breast milk or formula milk as soon as possible for as long as possible. Fantastic. And that brings me to the next thing I wanted to touch on is the value of allergy testing and the skin prick test. I get asked about that a lot. Um, Mm. You know, should I get my baby tested for X, Y, and Z? You know, I've given them, you know, I start, I've given them egg and they're broken out in a rash. Should I do a skin test? And again, it's not my area. So I find sometimes I struggle with trying to actually give the parents a a kind of evidence-based answer. The two scenarios are, one is that a child has already reacted to something and they need to be investigated for it. And that's a reasonable thing to do because the story of the allergic reaction is very dominant over the quality of the tests. If you have no history of reactivity to a food and you do a skin prick test and it's positive, it's 50% likely to be a false positive. 
Okay. Whereas if you have a history of a reaction to a food and the test is positive, it's maybe 85 to 90% likely it's a true positive. If you have a negative test, it's 95% likely to be true. So we allergists always do far fewer tests than people who are not allergists because we're only looking for condition A or B, not conditions A, B, C, D, E, E, and F. Because the more times you toss a coin, the more likely you are to have a false answer. It'll end up on its side once. So, the you know, like the, the 1 in 20 chance of a P equals 0.05 in yeah. multiple testing. You have to control for that in statistics. So in testing, you have to control for that. And what do I need from the test? So we would only do a test, a skin test, if we know that we're going to do X with a positive result or Y with a negative result. So that's the children who have a history of reaction. Testing is really useful. There's no role for doing testing before there's a history of reactivity for the food. And for families where they have another child with peanut allergy or another child with egg allergy, that's a marginal zone. And we can normally take families to the point where they go, well, we just need to give this child that food. But that would only be if there was no other risk factors available. Like we do want to see the children with bad eczema or if they've had milk allergy, we will want to see them before we uh, say change your diet further. Okay, But on the other hand, we do want families with milk allergy to eat egg and peanut anyway, because the chances of them having all three allergies very early in life are low and they increase by avoiding. Okay. And that's, that's an important message because often the reflex would be, I should avoid everything else that could potentially be allergenic. But now you're saying that that is not the best approach. Dele- delay is the enemy. If you've had, if, and we are now re- screening clinic letters where if there's nothing serious in the story reported by the family doctor who's referring it, we ring the family and say, start the egg, start the peanut. And they're on the foods before they come in and see us eight weeks later. Because in a young baby's life, eight weeks is a long immunological window lost. And can I ask, what are the reactions that we're talking about in terms of having a proper reaction to a food? The IgE-based symptoms are lip swelling, hives, eye swelling, sneezing, wheezing, like the, like anybody would recognize from an allergic reaction. The delayed ones are uh, loose stools and cramping and then eczema. They would be, That would be the cluster we would see together. But sl- sleeplessness and um, pulling your legs up and stuff like that, I can't say that that really is going to respond to an allergy-focused treatment plan. And how early could you do a skin test in terms of the child's yeah, age? Well, the, yeah. the skin test uh, depends on the neurovascular bundle in the skin relating to you know, um, uh, vasodilation due to histamine. So that's really not fully complete until about th- maybe three to four months. So we wouldn't re- really do skin prick tests until at least five months. And there's no other test for allergies. There's a blood test. I think you really need to be considered by a doctor who knows, not, not necessarily an allergist, Primary care could do it or general pediatricians can do that. But we really want them to just do a very limited number of tests. Throwing mud against the wall is not what we want. Great. And I suppose at five months, a lot of the time, they haven't been exposed to that many different allergens. Mm. So it mightn't yield as much as, you know, You're very likely to have false positives when they haven't eaten the food. Yeah. So I think the message to come across that if you don't have a specific reaction to a specific food, doing a an expedition with a skin test is of no value, really. No value. It's, it's of negative value. It's probably harmful. And then finally, the thing I wanted to discuss was the follow-up or the, the observational study you were doing during 
COVID. We discussed um, findings of one of the papers that you published recently about the developmental outcome, the two-year developmental outcome of babies that have gone, gone through the COVID year and how they mm. were deficient in certain domains. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the pandemic is... It's not receding fast enough, but we're we're we've moved into the next phase of of life. But the babies had a very abnormal time. Mum, mum at home, like for six months, most mothers would have had statutory maternity leave as well. But they were also then home for the next six months, so the breastfeeding rates were higher, and the allergy rates were probably lower because the families could comply with the introductions more easily that we wanted done. So. We thought we might have higher allergy rates, but we had lower allergy rates. But we even when the babies started coming to our six-month appointments, we could immediately see that they had stranger danger. You know that thing where yes, they, yes. they don't like strangers. And babies of six months shouldn't have stranger danger. That's meant to be when they're between sort of 10 and 12 months. And interestingly on that, I definitely noticed that in my clinics yeah. during the pandemic, that the stranger anxiety was happening earlier and earlier. Well, they were out of the house even, and that was strange for them. And so we, we, with Susan Byrne, my colleague in uh, Crumlin and, and College of Surgeons, we designed studies to measure their development. We hadn't put this in the study originally, but it was just strike. It struck us at the six month appointments. So for the 12 month appointments, we got ages and stages questionnaires and uh, we did other assessments and they'd lower language, lower language skills. They'd lower pointing skills. The fewer babies were able to wave bye bye, but you don't need to wave bye bye if nobody's visiting you. Yeah. Okay. And some of these babies had very low rates of interaction with the outside world. 25% of the babies had not seen another baby by the time they were one year of age. Wow. Whereas, whereas normally they would be in mother and baby groups or going to some friends or family's house. I think, I, I just can't remember the number, but a high proportion of them had only been kissed by three people by the time they were six months old. So three is less than, there's two parents and there's four grandparents. So that means five, four, three grandparents haven't kissed the baby. And yeah, we hope that those deficits that we saw at twelve and twenty-four months will have resolved by the time they're five years of age. So we're we're just writing up a study to review those again next year, and we're going to do another study where we're going to set up another cohort to see if those findings have are not present in a group of children who are out and about in the normal way, and they'll also be seeing ch adults who aren't wearing masks because every time these poor kids went out, everybody was wearing masks. It's very hard to learn how to move your lips if you don't see anybody else's lips moving. And the, the, the facial recognition, again, there was a study done during COVID whereby um, babies couldn't recognise people once they took their mask off, if they have just met them with the mask on the whole yes. time. It, it should be the other way around, is that you used to hide your mask, hide your face to hide, yeah. whereas showing your face to, yeah. and being unfamiliar, it's inverted, isn't it? It's been a very riveting conversation and I've certainly learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners um learned a lot and it's great to get an insight from a specialist in, in, in the field because there's so much conflicting evidence and so much, um, you know, advice that might be evidence-based out there. So it's nice to actually get a breakdown of, of the different topics. Um, the last thing I want to touch on is, is eczema. Um, how early can a baby actually develop allergic eczema? Eczema can't really be medically diagnosed with standard criteria until a child is six months old. But we're all aware that the earlier your child gets a dry, scaly rash, the more likely that is to be eczema at six months. So I think we hear a lot that babies have had eczema since they were born, but I don't really think that's true. 
And we did a we did a study. Uh, you know, there's a filaggrin gene which is associated with eczema. It accounts for about fifty percent of the of the genetic component of eczema, and it's associated with what's called Palmer hyperlinearity, where you get extra lines on your hands. And you, we see this in parents of our patients. I we often say to the parents, "Can I see your hands, please?" And they go, "What?" And we go, and "We go, ah, you're the allergic parent." Okay. okay, so, so uh, it's just more lines on their palms. Their hands look like, I, I have a little bit of it, but yeah. other I, it, the next time you look at a mum's hands, you, you, you just know which parents, because families have dry-looking skin, and it's a familial condition. And we, we looked at 50 or 60 children in, a, in our baseline study in Cork, and they don't have palmar hyperlinearity when they're born. We took high-tech high, high photos of their skin, and we couldn't find any palmar hyperlinearity. Eczema can be present from very early on, but we've just published a study. You might know that if you protect the skin barrier for the first eight weeks of life, you can decrease the amount of eczema that develops. So there's definitely preclinical inflammation and abnormalities present probably from very early in life. But they, the cluster and the effects probably aren't there maybe for, you know, until six to 12 weeks, I think. Now, I'm not a dermatologist, but our study has shown that if you can protect the skin barrier Early in life, you're having an effect on eczema. So that means there must be something going on right from birth. Jonathan, it's been an amazing conversation, I think. And I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat to us on the Baby Tribe podcast. Any final words? It's been a pleasure to come. And I would say that to try and prevent allergies in anybody's children, make sure they have a diverse diet as soon as possible. If you think you're, if you have any doubt about a food, give it instead of don't give it. That's certainly great advice for me to give to parents when they come and see me in clinic. If in doubt, eat it. Yeah. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Baby Tribe podcast. We hope you found inspiration and valuable insights to help you on your parenting journey. Remember, you're doing an amazing job. Thanks for being part of the Baby Tribe community. See you next week.